KYW Original Podcasts. This is KYW In Depth. I'm Carol McKenzie. As long as we're in this pandemic, there's going to be a great need for PPE. And getting it remains a challenge for the doctors, nurses, and first responders who are on the front lines of this pandemic. There is still a shortage. And now grocery store workers, teachers, and veterinarians, among others, are looking for protection, too. This is where the nonprofit PPE for PA comes in, and it is quite an operation. It's a coalition of volunteer makers, craftspeople, and coordinators, and they're cranking out face shields and face masks as fast as they can by the thousands. The shields are made by volunteers with 3D printers, which if you're not familiar with this process, it is much more involved and labor-intensive than you might imagine. Shai Perednik is one of the leaders behind PPE for PA and the PA COVID-19 Makers Group. I gave him a call to talk about their mission, the demand, and what it takes to get PPE made and delivered. Well, actually, the first question I'd like to ask you as I was wondering <laughs> as I was reading through all this is, what do you do in your real life? <laughs> like, what is your background? I've been in IT for the last uh, 24 years or so, um, and I basically have worked with uh, a lot of uh, large financial organizations, startups. Um, I, I'm a solution architect today. Um, I've been an enterprise architect, infrastructure architect. Uh, so my role is really uh, helping companies understand technology and uh, eventually embark on a digital transformation and look forward to adopting new technologies. So then how did you get into this? I would say about five, five or six years ago, um, I started with uh, Arduino's electronics and then in about 2016 got into 3D printing and then continued to mechanical engineering, build a couple of printers um, and then continued getting to electronics and engineering. And then when the COVID-19 stuff started, it was around March, to, to, I think it was about towards the end of March, I think it was like the 23rd or so, where I kind of noticed that there was a large PPE shortage in PA area, particularly. I was kind of seeing a lot of posts about, you know, does anybody know where to get PPE? I was seeing a lot of companies pop up and uh, trying to sell them, um, as well as the designs for the face shields that we were seeing were starting to gain more widely uh, acceptance, right? There was a, a big company called Prusa Research that started the movement out of Czechoslovakia that when we started, they had already gone out and, and I believe just a weekend got about 8,000 face shields out to their hospitals there. The other one was a, a 3D Verkstan, which is the design that we actually settled on, which is a much simpler design uh, that was out of Sweden, had to gain acceptance from the Swedish health ministry and then the European health ministry and then a couple of other countries as well that are outside of the European Union. So we went ahead and adopted that design. Um, at the start of it was, you know, okay, there's, there's clearly a need. There's clearly the supplies and the designs are already, you know, pretty flushed out. Uh, they have approval. Let's go ahead and get some made and get them out to local hospitals. And that was really the start. And the initial part was, you know, if we get to, you know, if there's a request for 500, we'll, we'll figure out how do we get this done and let's just get the 500 out there. And here we are at about uh, 23,000 facials already. 23,000. Yeah. <laughs> so it's 23,000 face shields. And then, and then we, we slowly, I, I had a, a, a peer come on, a, a Sue, uh, who was, uh, was really from the beginning, my, I would say my, my right-hand person, right? She was always there. Uh, she picked up the cloth face masks um, and helped lead the, the efforts with the cloth face mask. She knows that area very well. Um, so she's helped with that. So we've, we've done almost 10,000 face, cloth face masks as well. And then we started doing things like ear savers and buttons and a whole bunch of other stuff we can get into. But 
Yeah, it's definitely been an exciting time just to see the the different requests come in, and we we've we've experimented with different designs like ventilator splitters and uh, ventilator valves and a whole bunch of different things, and we had a very um, I would say kind of just a very uh, process driven uh, method to accept the design right? where we'd, we would uh, look at the design, we would assess it with the medical advisor team that we had built, uh, we would then print it out, get it back to them, have them assess it, and at least once we had maybe two. Uh, to three of them give us some ideas to whether one is does the design even work um, and second what kind of a demand there is then we would put that on our approved design list and then get that out to the group to start printing so things like the the ventilator splitters never really took off because in, thankfully in pa we never had a need for uh, uh ventilators we never had a shortage here so uh, yeah i noticed i read through uh, a part of your guidebook and you do really have some very strict instructions and regulations um with regard to the 3d printing and what you're doing the reason we came up with the, the strict regulations and, and sort of rules was, you know, th- there's a couple of things. One is, as engineers, we love tweaking the design, right? And a lot of engineers love kind of looking for ways to improve things. Um, and sometimes that, that's great, but it wasn't really needed, right? And the, we had a lot of problems where we were, we were going, getting approval. Uh, then the hospital is maybe asking for, you know, 100 or, or 250, whatever it might be. And then somebody says, you know, hey, I have this better design. Can we get this in the pipeline? And it's like, you really can't do that, right? And talking to a lot of other maker groups and people that were doing things, we heard kind of the same consistency from them. They heard they had the same issues, the same challenges. Um, and the recommendation from everybody was try to, to settle on a design and use that one design and that's it. And so that's what we wanted to do. We, we knew that there was uh, this design that was not only now accepted by uh, a bunch of countries in Europe, but was also accepted by the uh, NIH, the National Health Institute in the US, in the US or NHI. Um, and then we said, okay, this is the design we're using. That's it. There's no modifications to it. Here's the design, and that's that's what we're moving forward with. Um, and so we we said, you know, here's the files. Don't even go and try to find them. Here's all the files you need. They're right there. Uh, here's the regulations. And then we started getting into the settings because there's a whole bunch of details around just the settings of how you print it, uh, where you have to be careful. One is that if you're feeling the outside, right? So the way that 3D printing is done is it's layering layers of plastic that are usually about the thickness of two human hairs in this case, maybe sometimes three human hairs. Wow. So very thin, very thin layers, right? Very precise process um, that the machines are very capable of doing, you know, in, in a wide range of costs, anywhere from, you know, $100 to $2,000 um, in our group. So the, the thing that was very important was we wanted everybody to understand that as you're laying down the plastic, it's very important that there's a complete seal around the outside. It's never going to be 100% perfect, but the more consistent the seal is around the inside, uh, around the outside. And then importantly, the inside as well has to be 100% plastic too, because generally when we 3D print things, we'll print them with a hollow inside um, just to save plastic and to save on weight. And so the exception here was, no, it has to be solid, 100% solid. Uh, there cannot be any kind of voids inside where any kind of liquid or moisture would get into. And that was the critical piece there, right? And we, we wanted to make sure that nothing could get in there, right? I mean, we, we, we don't have really the equipment to do you know, proper submersion testing or, you know, liquid absorbent testing, stuff like that. And so really just the idea that if, if it's 100% filled in plastic, that's probably the right way to go. And then that's also the, the things that we were seeing uh, from the European health institutes were also along those lines too, of, you know, 100% plastic, fill it 100%, make sure that no moisture can get in there. And so we just follow those kind of regulations as well. The other thing that we did too was run the colors um, and kind of talking to different hospitals. There was really no guidelines initially with colors and and talking to different hospitals, we got the feedback that, you know, no, no red or browns. Anything else is fine, but, but no red or brown or any kind of sort of shade of red and brown just because of uh, it, you can't really easily identify bodily fluids on there. So that's one of the things that we said. And 
it was fairly easy to comply with that one. And they also have to be able to undergo um, sterilization, right? Yeah, so that's one of the things that we did, right? One of the things we found out early on uh, was that a lot of hospitals and different facilities, right, whether it was a hospital or an EMT or a veterinarian clinic, they all had sort of different processes for how they do sterilization. Uh, there was some similarities between them, but there, there was always some like one or two nuances that were slightly different. So the advice that we got from a lot of the medical places was, it really, you know, if you guys leave them outside for a day, that's sufficient. And then we will sterilize them according to our hospital's procedures before uh, we go ahead and hand them out. Um, and so that was the thing that we've always done is we've always put a sheet in there and it just basically says that, you know, these aren't sterilized. We've, we've made them to our best of our ability. We've let them sit out for a day, uh, but they need to be sterilized according to your uh, hospital's restrictions. Um, and part of that also then drives what material you can use. Um, there's a common material for 3D printing called ABS um, that is tend to be used because it's very cheap. It's about uh, $6 for kilo versus the $20 that we spend on our filament. Um, and while it's cheap, the problem is that with certain disinfectants in the hospitals, that material can actually break down and then start um, giving you a rash on your face. Uh, it can cause a skin reaction. It's unfortunate because it is a cheaper material, but we said, no, we're not going to take that chance. We're just going to stick with the PETG material or at least a higher uh, PLA material, which uh, PETG is recycled, uh, usually recycled plastic or milk bottles, and PLA is a corner tapioca starch. And if we stick with the higher quality stuff, then one, we have less issues and waste, but two, we're also uh, more assured that they have, that they are using more pure plastics and not mixing in with uh, sort of byproducts and ABS. This is a very labor-intensive process, it sounds like. Yeah, it, it is. And it was really a lot of the work up front was really where the, the lot of this kind of figuring stuff out. I would say probably by the end of April to the beginning of, of May, we had a lot of this kind of figured out. And I feel like by May, we were really operating like a, a really well-oiled train. And uh, we were getting about 1,000 to 1,500 out per week. Um, and things were just flowing. So it's not just me, right? There's uh, people like Chris, Sandy, Jim, Dwayne, I, I could just start naming off a whole bunch of people that were really helpful, right? And it's not just the part itself, it's also the logistics, right? How do you handle shipping and delivery and stuff like that? Uh, so we have a lot of people that help there too. It's really a community effort. So how, tell, give me a breakdown of your group. How many, I know you say you call them makers. So how many mm -hmm. people are printing out these masks? Let's start there. So I, mean, I would say probably between the Facebook and the Discord server that we have, there's probably about 380 to 400 people on there. There's probably about, I would say about 75 that were active at any given time uh, within that group. Um, and, and that group consists of makers with 3D printers and cloth sewers with um, sewing machines. Um, and that's that's really the sort of the makeup of the group. And then we have uh, about three to four people that handle the sort of logistics and, and shipping. We have our kind of lead is, is a guy named Tom who lives here close to me. They've all been shippers before. They have shipping they have shipping experience, logistics and everything. So it was really great to have them come on board. The way it would work is that we would put all the face shields out in my carport on tables. We had an outbound table and inbound tables. Um, and then we would give them a list of where they all need to go to. And they would go ahead and deliver to those locations. They would kind of figure out the routes. They would figure out where they need to pick up from. So it was really great to have that help there. Um, we then have things like um, Sandy, who helped us out with some of the legal stuff and things we had to do for the nonprofit and getting the nonprofit formed out. Uh, we had somebody like Chris who helped with the uh, filament logistics as well as uh, quality control and managing our Discord server and our community. People like Neil who was doing uh, runs back and forth between our depot that's in Lilith and the depot that we have here in Phoenixville um, and just moving parts back and forth. We had a couple people that 
uh, had laser cutters. And initially we were doing all the sheets with laser cutting. They had to probably cut through somewhere between 16,000 sheets. And the bulk of that was actually done by a guy we had out, uh, Nate, in uh, Lebanon. Uh, with him and his family there cutting about 16,000 sheets for us. Um, and then I would say probably recently we've had an, a couple of other guys doing uh, cutting the sheets but with drill presses. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we're able to get through the sheets quicker uh, that way. We had somebody help us out. She volunteered and helped us out with the website, uh, got that done for us. We had another guy named Dan who helped us out with the logo and the sort of color schemes. Some other people help us with uh, communications, just kind of building out the the text itself on the uh, original GoFundMe campaign and then, and then the Give Butter campaign and uh, took sort of the loose words that I had put together and, and direction that I had put together and actually put it into uh, more nicer language that then help people understand. So it was really helpful to have all these people in the community help out. Did, did they help you, you come up come up with a mission? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the mission was from the beginning was was pretty straightforward. It, it was really just provide PP, provide PPE for free to the frontline workers. Uh, and that's it, right? That That's what our goal was. We wanted to be make sure that anybody that was on the front lines, uh, from hospitals to medical clinics to nursing homes and the nurses there uh, to daycares that had to be open to maybe a couple of supermarkets that had to be open, uh, making sure that they had the facials that they need, but most importantly, making sure that they didn't pay for those things. Uh, that was the most important part is, you know, you should have PPE and you shouldn't have to pay for it. How long does it, so you said you were cranking out 1,000 to 1,500 a week. How long does it take to make a face shield? So we usually run them in batches. And I would say that if we took an average for one face shield, it's about 30 minutes to 30 to an hour to print one face shield. Wow. It really really depends on the settings, the material you're using and stuff like that. So it it depends on the machine you have and the experience that you have. You know, some of us that have more experience in the group, we can knock out, you know, somewhere between... Uh, three to five of them between an hour and a half to three hours. Again, just depends on the material. While others that have you know less experience and maybe slower machines or, or older machines, they might take an hour to do one of them. So are these um, 3D printers, are these mainly people who do this for a living, the, you know, the, that this is their their business, or are these, no. is it a mixture? Okay. It, it's, all, it then, it's, yeah. all, it's all hobbyists. Um, I would say the only, it, it's all really hobbyists and enthusiasts and people that have you know 3D printers at home that it's their hobby or, or side sort of project that they're use that they're on. It's not anybody that has you know we we didn't get much support from any kind of uh, businesses or companies that had 3D printers. There was one out in Virginia that we put them in touch with. Actually, a request that we got out of Florida that they were a company that had 3D printers and wanted to put the 3D printers to use, um, and they contributed to the group in Florida, and they're not contributing to the group in Virginia. But besides that, I would say 95% came from volunteers printing on their own. Even the, we got a couple of thousand from Matter Hackers out in California, uh, probably about six or 7,000 from them. And those came to them through volunteers as well. Wow. Why, why do you think that is? Why aren't businesses uh, helping out here? I don't know why they're not helping out. I know the things that we saw was some of the businesses that were getting involved early on were looking to make a profit. Oh. Um, and some of them were, were selling them at, you know, anywhere from, $10 a piece to $15 a piece to $20 a piece. And we saw 3D printed ones uh, popping up on the marketplace and on Facebook and different places. Um, and then we saw more of the injection molded ones and ones that were coming from China popping up. Um, and we really didn't see, at least in, in our area, any companies kind of stepping up. I mean, there were mm-hmm. companies that were stepping up in, um, in California and, and running their 3D printers. There were companies stepping out in, in the Midwest. There was one company that was uh, stepping up and helping out uh, CME, CNC. Uh, they jumped in and helped out. So there, there were, 
Um, and then in, in Europe, particularly, a lot of the big uh, 3D printer companies, I mean, Prusa Research is one of them uh, with, you know, I think they did something like 80,000 or 100,000 face shields. I think here, from just what I saw, the majority was all kind of makers and uh, hobbyists. How much does it, how much does each shield cost? So the, the estimated cost of the, of the actual, our cost to produce them is somewhere under around like 40 cents or so, 30 to 40 cents. And, and keep in mind, that's actually more expensive um, than if you're mass producing, because we're basically buying uh, binder paper, but binder sheets, uh, just thick binder sheets and the 3D filament. And so based on those two, our costs are actually higher than a mass production. The downside is in order to get into mass production, you have to purchase a certain quantity which that, that means that we have to have the funds for that. So the, the 3D printed ones are about, I would say, probably 30 to 50 cents, roughly. Are you having any problem finding materials? Yeah, we actually did initially. When we started back in March, uh, we had placed an order with a company for basically a 3D printer filament, about 60 rolls of filaments, about 60 kilos. Uh, it comes out to be about 140 pounds or so um, of filament. And that took almost three and a half weeks, um, that initial order, because of the delays not only on their side and the logistics side, but the delays in shipping, the delays in manufacturing. So that took a while there. I would say probably in April, things got a little better. And we didn't have that tough time on the filament side. We interestingly had a, a shortage on the button side. Our sewing group uh, had a real struggle in finding buttons for, for a few weeks there. And so we actually printed uh, somewhere around four to 5,000 buttons, I feel like, hmm. that we printed out for the sewing group to start making the ear savers and some of the cloth masks that they're making. Those ear savers are amazing. We, we didn't expect this. So it was interesting. We, we started with those. And we found the design. And we just had somebody in the local EMS say, hey, I saw this ear saver thing. Can you guys make them for us? And so we did the same thing. We, we went and printed probably about six different designs in about four different materials um, and slightly different settings on each one of those. And we took them out to a couple different places. They kind of gave us the feedback. We settled on really two designs, one long one and one short one. And same thing. And they had very strict restrictions that... If you print the long one, you have to print it with this settings and this material. A short one has to be printed with this settings and that material. And it was interesting. We had, we weren't doing that many of them. I think we probably had up to about like two, two and a half to 3,000 of those. And then in one weekend, we had a local EMS and hospital ask us for about uh, two, for about 1,000. And I put out the request to the group and I said, hey, you know, the, this group needs 1,000. What can we do to help them out? And it was interesting. That was on a Thursday. And by Monday, I think we had almost 2,000 uh, ear savers on, on, on my carport. Wow. So people really just step up. Yeah. And it was awesome. And especially with the ear savers, you can print them on the smaller printers. And so a lot of people that have the smaller printers that weren't able to help with the headbands were able to jump in with the ear savers and get them over. Same thing with the buttons as well. And could you describe that for us? Because when I first read ear savers, I thought, well, how do you do that? But it's <laughs> really an ingenious design. Yeah. And, and to credit, I mean, it, it's not it's not our design. It's, it's designs that we found out that, right, the, the biggest thing was to find designs that we know had been used by other hospitals. And we can show our hospitals here hey, look, this big hospital in so-and-so states using it, it's probably okay. Can you then test it, right? That, that gives it some legitimacy. And so the designs are, they're interesting. The one that we settled on, imagine like a six-inch ruler, and basically it's a six-inch ruler with little fingers that stick up and down uh, along that ruler probably every inch or so. And the whole idea is that based on your head size, you're going to pull the ear savers off your ear, and you're going to pull them onto these little fingers that stick out from this plastic piece, um, and then, therefore, that saves your ear, and then the that nylon strap is not rubbing against your inner ear any, or the outside of your ear anymore and causing that rashing. And then the interesting thing we found is that the hole in the middle is specifically designed for those people that have ponytails. 
that was the other thing is that sometimes there's little things like that that you don't really notice in a design that's actually really important that people with ponytails couldn't use some of the ear savers that were out there because they were all solid. And so that's one of the reasons why our designs that we settled on for the long ones have a hole in the middle. So how are you funded? How much money have you spent so far on all of your materials and where are you getting it? So as far as funding, we started off with a uh, GoFundMe campaign just because that's kind of the de facto. We, we got to about uh, $6,500 um, in donations uh, within the, GoFund- the GoFundMe campaign. We started off at 3000 um, And then as we kind of started seeing the demand, we raised that to 6000 with the idea that 6,000 would get us to a, a roughly about 6,000 face shields. And it turned out it got to us way more than that. What ended up happening is we uh, decided to form the uh, nonprofit. Um, this is something that I had worked on in the past that I, I wanted to do for a long time anyhow, was forming a nonprofit. And some of the things that we were seeing was people were donating their time. They were donating money. Some people even donate supplies and uh, furniture like desks and stuff. And so we wanted to form the foundation uh, to give some of those people back the, the nonprofit things, like you'd be able to give them a donation receipt, uh, be able to give them the protection in case something happened as well. And so when we did that, we actually, as part of that, uh, switched over to a different campaign called Give Butter, uh, an awkward name, but uh, nonetheless, <laughs> uh, just a different, different platform, mm-hmm. um, has a bit better options. And we raised, I think so far about 2000, a little over 2000. I have to double check this morning. Uh, actually, no, sorry. We got to 3000 yesterday. Um, so we, we raised 3000 there. So we're total at about $9,500 in raised. We have used nearly all the funds. I believe that there's about 800 or so left in the funds. And we do have our, our spreadsheet that has basically all our expenses where we've bought things. Uh, that's all public facing. It's listed in our group and discord. Uh, anybody can go on there and see where we spent all the money, but we primarily been spending money on filament, plastic sheets for face shields, cloth for cloth masks, buttons, needles sewing oil, just small stuff like that to help keep the, the community going. How much longer do you think you're going to keep doing this? I, I think our goal is really to keep doing this until the manufac- the mass manufacturing really ca- catches up. Once the, the mass manufacturing com- catches up and we really don't have the shortages, uh, then I don't really think that there's a need anymore for the 3D printed versions. Um, there's a, an argument to be made, right, that there's still local communities and groups that need PPE at, at no cost. Um, and, and that would still fall under our mission. And the question is just, how do we continue to supply them, right? Does it make sense to continue supplying them with 3D printed ones? Do we search for enough funds to start going to injection molding, which is hard because injection molding, you need about uh, sometimes between ten dollars to $20,000 just to get started. And so the thought right now, at least, is we're going to keep going through the end of the year. Our goal is to try to have about 2000 in the sort of stockpile that once we get with through all the orders that we have and through a couple of schools that we have left and other medical facilities that we have about 2000 left and we really see just how that, how long that 2000 lasts and what kind of the demand is out there. And um, based on that, then we decide whether we continue or not. I, hopefully this you know, all goes away next year and we you know sometime or another. And, and then that's it. So the, at least the face shields, it's not, you know, the cloth, it's not going to be forever. It's just going to be for as long as really there's that PPE shortage or as long as just that we have this virus around and uh, people need that PPE for things like going to school and, you know, teachers want them to protect themselves from the, when they're at school, stuff like that. How many outstanding requests do you have right now? It's about 7,000 or so. We have a fairly large order just between three different schools that accounts for about 5,500 of that. We have to see how their school plans changed based on their school plans that might change that 5,500 that they have requested. But that's the hardest part is just at the moment, 
based on the fact that people going back to work, kids being off school now for summer break, and some people going on vacation, um, and all the other stuff that's been going on around the last sort of two months between June and July, we've unfortunately lost a lot of our, our makers just to those things. I mean, they're going to they're gonna hopefully come back, but our, our production has slowed down to about 500 or so per week. It's still, a, a, I would say, a respectable number, given the fact that these are all you know 3D printed by people by hand. Um, but it's hard to meet a request for, you know, 3000 to one school when you only have 500 per week, right? That's six weeks just dedicating to them alone and not delivering to anybody else, Mm -hmm. which is not practical, right? I mean, we have hospitals that come in, we have other places that we have to prioritize. Are you exhausted? (laughs) This is a lot of Uh, work. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I would say I have a, I have a very supportive wife and family. They've they've been a very good help. Uh, The community is very supportive. Uh, But yeah, by myself, I mean, I, I, I do feel a bit burnt out at times. It's, it, it is a lot of work. It's a lot of work organizing, but I'm really thankful that we have a really strong community and that we have really dedicated people in our community that um, even when I go radio silent for you know, a week and a half or so, just because I'm caught up with work, there magically shows up a box of you know, two, 300 face shields, uh, my carport. The community is so awesome that there's just people still going, right? They're still, they, they can see that there's still requests out there. They still want to contribute to those requests. And so they just keep going. How many hours a day do you put into this? I'd say for, for me, initially starting was probably about, during the week was about two hours. During the weekend was somewhere between four to six hours um, through March, April, and the beginning of, uh, sorry, March, April, and May. In June, it kind of started tapering off and same thing in July. And I would say probably now in a whole week's time, I would probably put, you know, maybe five or six hours. And the majority of that is on the weekend. Yeah. Thank you for joining us, but thank you for all the work for the work you're doing and providing PPE for people who really need it. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. I want to stress that, you know, it's, it's uh, while I, I lead the group and, and I'm, I'm certainly, you know, excited and I, I'm appreciative for all the help uh, that we've had from the community, that this really is a community effort, right? And I think it's really important that we give credit to the whole community. It's really hard to call out specific people. And I, I know I've thrown some names out there um, and I probably missed a lot of names. But I, I, this would have never happened with, without the community that we have. I mean, there's no way that I could have done this alone. And it's really the community has stepped up from a maker perspective, from an administrative perspective. Um, it's just really been a community effort. And I'm, I'm entirely grateful and thankful to be part of an awesome community that can make this happen. And so if people are looking for you, I know you're the lead on the 3D, uh, the printing lead for PP4PA, but you also have a Facebook page, right? Yeah, correct. So I, so I act as the lead for the entire group. I lead the, the 3D printing side, and I have another guy named Will who's taking over the, the cloth making side. Um, but the, the group is uh, ppe4pa.com. Again, that's uh, ppe4pa.com. Um, and then the Facebook group is uh, PA COVID-19 Makers Group. Um, and then if you go on there, then you can find the links to the Discord server. The Discord link is a, a long link, so it's hard to give it out over phone. <laughs> Well, Shai, thanks again. Thanks for taking time out to talk with us because you are one busy man. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Carol McKenzie, and we'll have another episode out soon.